As the conservative leadership race heats up, more party insiders and party elites are calling on conservatives to become more progressive and once again appeal to leftist voters. But is this really a path to victory? I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show. everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I hope that all the dads out there, all the fathers had a wonderful Father's Day. I hope everyone reached out to their dad to talk about how much they appreciate the role of fathers in our society. I know we had a great day yesterday with my husband and my kids. It's just so great to get to uh, appreciate the, the, the role that he plays in the family. The kids love every, every second, every minute that they get with their daddy. So it was really fun and really great. Today, I want to talk about the conservative leadership race and this familiar call that we get from party insiders and from the sort of brass of the conservative party urging conservatives to be more progressive, be more left-wing in order to win elections. Well, first, I just want to make a clear point. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is the worst prime minister of my lifetime. He is eminently beatable, and the conservatives should be able to beat him. They, they almost beat him in the last two elections, but almost isn't good enough. If you look at Justin Trudeau and look at what he's done to our country, he's arguably the worst prime minister since his father, arguably even worse given what's happened in the last year. During his time in office, he's infused the federal government with every latest leftist woke trend, scrubbing our country of its proud traditions, apologizing on behalf of every other Canadian. But for himself, he never takes responsibility for his scandals, for his ethical violations, or for the old boys club liberal corruption that he has re-implemented. He's racked up more debt than anyone thought imaginable. He's plunged our country into economic instability with out-of-control inflation, higher taxes, anemic growth rates, and an out-of-control housing bubble and cost-of-living bubble. Interest rates are going up. Things are getting even more expensive. And in all likelihood, our country is in on the verge of another crushing recession, all with Justin Trudeau at the helm, who frankly has no idea how to get us out of this or how to change course. Meanwhile, Trudeau's stomped on our civil liberties. He's used wartime measures against peaceful protesters, and he's continued to divide the country worse than any leader in our history. Any, anyone who criticizes him, he calls them racist, sexist, bigots, he calls them anti-vaxxers, and of course he calls them anti-science. Trudeau is loathsome. He's a disgrace. He's no business running our country. And Canadians see this. They know this. That's why the majority of Canadians don't vote for Trudeau. They don't support him. In the last election, Trudeau won with the smallest share of the vote in Canadian history. So once again, he's eminently beatable. And yet three elections in a row here, the Conservatives haven't been able to edge him out. They have not been successful in beating him. Like I said, they came very close, but they didn't do it. Now, during this conservative race, leadership race, we're, we're, we're voting to see who will run against Trudeau in the next election. That vote's going to happen over the summer. We had Ian Brody on the show last week to explain the process and how it's all going to work. But it's time to look at who, who, who to vote for and, and what the strategy will be. And one of the strategies that we keep seeing floated by party insiders and sort of the party brass is this idea that in order to beat Trudeau, the conservatives have to become more like Justin Trudeau, that we need to run a moderate, maybe fiscally prudent, but socially leftist or woke or progressive party. And that's the path to victory, that we need to abandon conservatism and just appeal to people who would otherwise vote for Justin Trudeau in the liberals. 
This isn't true, though, and, and we shouldn't look any further than the 2021 election to see this strategy didn't work. That essentially was the Aaron O'Toole strategy, and that is why he lost. Sure, he had an authenticity problem because he ran for leader as a true blue conservative, fiscally conservative and socially conservative, or at least culturally conservative. And then when he came to the general election, he basically flip-flopped on every issue. So Canadians didn't really trust him. Uh, but but as far as the strategy that he took himself, he, he wanted to appeal to those blue liberals, those red Tories who believe that in, in order to win, uh, you know, you have to run on big government health care, big government spending, uh, big government generally. And and it just didn't work. And, and we can look at the numbers and we can see that the, the conservatives lost seats in B.C. They didn't pick up any seats in the 905. I think they only won one seat in the entire GTA. And they saw a reduced seat count from 20, 120 seats down to 119, a, re, a reduced vote share from 34% down to 33%. And so the strategy didn't work, and yet we continue to see it peddled out. I think the latest iteration of this, uh, from this line of thinking from Tory insiders, came uh, via a piece written in The Hub by Erno Tools chief strategist Dan Robertson. So Dan had a piece out last week where he basically said that the problem with the campaign in 2021 was not the strategy, but it was it was just the structural uh, issues that face conservatives. So I want to take a, a greater look at this theory that, that, that we hear from Red Tories and some party insiders saying that it wasn't Aaron O'Toole's fault, it wasn't anything to do with their strategy, it was just that, that you know, there's all these other problems that are beyond their control. And so to, to break down this piece a little more, I am pleased to be welcomed by Hamish Marshall. You know Hamish, he was our in-house pollster during the last election, and he's worked on a lot of different leadership campaigns, including he worked for uh, Stephen Harper in the Conservative Party, and then he also worked for Andrew Scheer and ran his campaign back in 2019. So Hamish, thank you so much for joining the show. It's great to have you on the program. My pleasure. So what do you think of this idea that the... Uh, conservatives lost in 2021 because of the structural issues and not so much because of the strategy. Well, I think it's an excuse for losing. I mean, look, at, at the end of the day, you can tell if a strategy worked by if it worked or not. Um, you know, and I ran the campaign in 2019. We didn't win the government. My strategy didn't work. I think parts of it worked, other parts didn't. Some things we did right, we picked up a bunch of seats, just a lot of things we did wrong. Um, but I think that arguing that the strategy worked if it just wasn't for the situation uh, is a mistake. Um, you know, the, the, you know, the, the idea that, that a strategy can work outside of the situation, outside of COVID, is ridiculous. We knew there was a pandemic happening. The pandemic had been happening for over a year. To argue that, you know, that O'Toole had a brilliant strategy uh, that was working, but just COVID meant that Trudeau won despite that. Well, if your strategy, if you're running a campaign in 2021, your strategy doesn't include COVID and what's happening with the pandemic, the single largest public policy issue of the previous, at that point, year and a half, it's not much of a strategy. Um, and when we actually look at the results, the Conservative Party was substantially weaker after the 2021 election, and it was a move in the opposite direction. Okay, so let's go through what the structural issues that Robertson paints uh, that, that 
plague the conservative party and we can sort of look at the validity of each of these. So the first one he identifies is that the liberal vote is far more efficient. And so that, that kind of goes hand in hand with the fact that Trudeau had the smallest percentage of, of victory. Somehow he manages to win while also losing. And so what, what, what do you think of this line of sort of justification as to why conservatives don't win because the liberals are just sort of better at getting the right amount of votes in each seat? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's some sort of magic liberal trick. The liberal majority, especially the, the built in seats in Ontario, is built on them winning seats by 10, 12, 15%, not by 50%. So they do win a lot of seats by not huge margins. They're not tiny margins either. They're also not winning a lot of seats by 200 votes. And it's just sort of luck of the draw that they win a lot of seats by 200 votes. And so the idea that in Ontario, the liberals don't win by a lot. But that, what that's really just saying is that Ontario is a very sort of, uh, especially the 905, is a very sort of place where a lot of votes swing together. And if you start winning some seats, you're going to win a lot of seats. It's how Harper won a lot of seats in Ontario in 2011. That's just the f- a function of Ontario in federal politics. And the Liberals have certainly done better in Ontario in the last few elections, and it's something that Conservatives have to tackle. But the argument that this is, this, this is a structural thing and that Conservatives somehow mitigates against Conservatives and that if only things were better, that the O'Toole would have won and they were actually closer, is, is, is undercut by the facts. At the end of the day, you know, O'Toole lost a, net lost a seat in the GTA. Um, they lost uh, a, a lot of votes. So, for instance, across the GTA, conservatives lost 80,000 votes from 2019. So they ended up with less seats and less votes which doesn't sound to me like the fact they were making things closer or, or anything else. And this is in the face of a Trudeau that was less popular uh, in, in, in 2021 than he was in 2019 or 2015, certainly. So you had the Liberals declining. They lost some votes too. But the fact that the Conservatives couldn't gain, gain votes in this, in, this, in this environment indicates that O'Toole's message didn't resonate. If what you'd seen was the Liberals had lost a bunch of votes and the Conservatives had picked up a bunch of those votes, then you can have this argument that O'Toole's strategy was working and that this moderate message was was connecting and that people were, were flooding to O'Toole. But if O'Toole's message was designed to pick up votes in Ontario, the opposite happened. He lost votes in the GTA. And what's really incredible is that is that for all the talk of you know reaching out and creating getting new new a new environment. That isn't what happened. The, you know, O'Toole, um, uh, you know, if you look at O'Toole, if you look at the seats at O'Toole won, sorry, if you look at the seats in 2019 and how the Conservatives won in Ontario and how they performed in 2021, uh, uh, Conservative vote went up by 20,000 votes, but it dropped by 46,000 votes in seats the Conservatives hadn't held. So what ended up happening is O'Toole, for all his talk about broadening the base and not attracting uh, and attracting new votes and not being afraid to piss off some old line conservatives in order to win, uh, ended up getting less votes in the areas conservatives hadn't held and more votes conservatives had. He ended up making the balance in Ontario worse. And so, you know, yes, liberal vote is efficient in, in Ontario, but the conservative vote became less efficient. And that's a problem. Yeah, it's such an interesting uh, argument saying that, you know, b- being moderate worked and that but then also not being able to point to places where moderate voters are and, 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 and they're not they're not coming into the Conservative Party. Well, the second uh, structural issue that Robertson identified is that more Canadians uh, identify as as liberals. So so the liberals walk into every election with a built in advantage that they that they have sort of better brand loyalty, essentially. Uh, what do you what do you make of that? 
So I think this is a, you know, I've looked a lot at this sort of brand identification question over the years. And I think it's actually a problem that is actually, it's sort of a concept that's imported from the United States. In the United States, you have parties whose names don't reflect their ideology, but Democrats and Republicans. There's no reason that a Republican, a party called Republican should be right-wing or one, one called Democrat should be left-wing. These are just names, right? In Canada, we have uh, party names that kind of, or at least for the big parties, reflect their values, liberal and conservative. And those words, those names mean something outside of the party political context. And I think that this question of voter identification, I've always believed, breaks down in Canada. Because when you ask people, do you think yourself more as a conservative or a liberal, people are going to take a, cho take a choice about what those, those terms mean in terms of values and everything else, uh, not in terms of you know, the party identification. So it's very different from the situation of saying you identify as a Republican or a Democrat. So I think it's just it's, it's, it's an idea that's moved into Canada in a not particularly um, uh, elegant way. Look, do conservatives need more people, especially in Ontario, to identify as conservatives? Would that be helpful? Of course it would. Um, but this isn't new. You know, conservatives, when conservatives were winning majorities in, in 2011 and minorities in the, in the early part of the century, um, though that, that identification uh, disparity existed. When I worked in the Harper government, we saw that even when we were winning governments, more conservative, more Canadians identified themselves as liberals than as conservatives. Um, so yeah, is it a problem? Of course it's a problem. Is it a deep structural problem? I, I don't really think so. I, I think it has been overcome in the past and will be overcome in the future. And also I just don't think it's a particularly effective measurement of where Canadians are at. I think both of the words have very positive and negative connotations. I, I myself for a long time thought of myself as a classical liberal, and I don't think that there's much liberalism within the liberal party and within the liberal strains of thinking um, these days are rather illiberal in the way that they crack down on civil liberties and, uh, you know, the whole concept of cancel culture. Um, wh wh whereas conservative, you know, you want to conserve the traditions of your society and you want to build more based on, on what's been successful. Um, and and it's, it's sort of interesting to see how that, how that plays in. I, I, I stopped referring to myself as a classical liberal because I, I don't think there's any point in trying to save that word. But I think uh, part of the problem, it really, Hamish, is that with conservatives, you have the liberals sort of bashing conservatives, the media jumping on board to say, look at these conservatives, they're awful, they're racist, they're bigoted, they're backwards-minded. And then the problem is you have some progressive conservatives sort of echoing that and agreeing with that and saying, look back at what Harper did with the with the NECAB ban, look back at what uh, some of these people ran on in 2019 or 2021, and sort of throwing their own side under the bus. And I think conservatives really need to stop doing that because it's really not helpful for the for the bigger, broader brand. Well, to move on to the third point that Robertson makes here, and this one's the most frustrating to me, um, is this idea that, that there's a uh, sort of strategic voting going on, that the Liberals uh, and NDP, the NDP vote will collapse and the Liberals will get what they need. And every single election, you hear the same story trotted out by the Liberals, like, you can't vote for the NDP, you have to vote for the Liberals, we have to stop these evil conservatives from forming government. And, 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 and then you have conservatives that sort of go along with that, saying, okay, well, you know, in order to appeal to these people, it's, it's not it's not the conservative base or the sort of broad middle class people who are apolitical that you have to appeal to. You have to start appealing to these leftist voters in order to win. And that's sort of where the campaign strategy gets developed. Um, what do you what do you make of this sort of 
progressive tactical voting or strategic voting issue? Well, look, look, it's a fact that a certain percentage of people who consider the NDP in most campaigns end up voting liberal, especially if they think conservatives have a chance of winning. This happened in 2019, happened in 2021. And I think there's there's two problems. One is in the article, they argue that that this was unforeseen, that the NDP underperformed their modeling. That means their modeling was wrong. Uh, it, it happened in 2019. It was explained to the O'Toole campaign team that this was a problem and that they had to address it. So to now sort of feign surprise that this happened is, is, is a, bit, uh, a, bit, a bit much to, to take. But on top of that, you know, it, it, it creates a, there's a fundamental, I, look, I spent a lot of time after 2019 wrestling this myself because it certainly happened. And, you know, we, we, we believe we didn't win seats. We thought we were going to win because of it. Um, and, and it, it is it is it is an issue, but I think I think the reaction to it is wrong. In, in that, number one, there is no universe where a conservative party can make itself so unscary to NDP voters that they will still vote NDP as opposed to stampede to the liberals. And if if that conservative party still wants to get votes from conservatives, right? I mean, to create a conservative party that's acceptable to uh, to NDPers or acceptable enough that they will not vote liberal is such a bizarre thing that will turn off such a huge chunk of conservative voters that, that I don't believe that's actually a, a square that can, or a circle that can be fit into that, that square hole or however the metaphor goes. Um, <laughs> the, the, I, I believe the solution is to, and we didn't do enough of this in 2019, it's one of the areas we failed in, is you have to persuade enough people, whether they be NDP leftists or middle of the road voters or center right business liberals, that the liberal party itself and the Trudeau government itself is irredeemable, uh, that they cannot, that even if these leftist voters don't really like the prospect of a conservative, uh, conservatives doing well, that, the, that Trudeau is so toxic to them, the liberals are so toxic to them, they can't vote for them. Now, the extreme case to that would be, you know, uh, what happened with Kathleen Wynne in Ontario in 2018, where I'm sure the Liberals were running out hoping that they could get people to, to, to keep voting for them to stop Doug Ford, et cetera, et cetera. But the Liberal brand and the Wynne brand have become so toxic. Now, look, that's a historic collapse in the Liberal Party that I don't think can be recreated, you know, uh, easily. But there has to be more to be done to make people understand that uh, they have to want change and that desire for change has to come across the political spectrum. Well, it's one of the things that he, he writes about, which I, I hadn't heard this research before. Uh, I'll, I'll just read a quote from the piece from Dan Robertson here in The Hub. He writes, the research is clear. 25% of Canadians who considered voting conservative believe that the party has not made enough progress on social issues I care about. Old negative brand attributes, especially among suburban voters, persist and must be overcome. Focus group participants still describe the party as corporate American and old fashioned. Uh, as the suburbs urbanize a trend all over the Western world, the conservatives are in danger of becoming the party of rural Canada. I've never heard that uh, description before of the conservative party that, we're, that the party is corporate American and old fashioned. Um, I, I, I think of Tories as being sort of, you know, just as staunchly loyalist and pro-Canada, probably more so now than the Liberals, just because um, the Liberal Party in Canada is, is picking up all of these progressive woke uh, trends from the United States. <laughs> and so conservatives that are rejecting that and, and, you know, being the ones who are more patriotic and pro-Canada. I, I've never heard this, this uh, line of attack. And I'm wondering, 
Is this something you see in your research, that 25% of uh, Canadians would never vote conservative uh, because the party's too old-fashioned or too corporate or too American? Well, I think what they're saying is that 25% of people who conservative vote conservative but didn't, they, had, they listed that as their reason. This obviously comes from their internal, their internal research, which I've not been privy to. Uh, but um, yeah, there's certainly a, a certain group of people who will say something like that. But the fact of the matter is, is that if the O'Toole campaign, which ran the exact opposite message, ended up with less votes and less seats in all these suburban areas, that's clearly not the defining problem, right? Because the O'Toole, camp, camp, the O'Toole message was to, to move um, dramatically to the center and even to the left in many ways. And we ended up in this situation where if that was the case, then we should have seen a huge a stream of people coming to the Conservative Party in, in suburban areas. And frankly, you look at the 905, the 905, the Conservatives lost 50,000 votes in that one seat. They lost two seats, but picked up one. So they ended up, you know, losing a lot of votes and a lot of and a lot of seats. They and in um, in there's 29 seats in the 905 outside of outside of the actual city of Toronto. Conservatives lost votes in 21 of those. And the situation is even worse in Greater Vancouver. Greater Vancouver, the Conservatives lost four seats and 35,000 votes. So if if the message was the Conservative Party, uh, you know, Aaron O'Toole's a uh, progressive conservative party that was trying to run. I think Conrad Black wrote on the, on the, on a few days ago that there was uh, no substantial policy difference between the liberals and the, and the conservatives in the last election. Um, if, if that's what they were offering and this, this party that had turned its back on social conservatism and had many of much of the lecturing that you pointed out of, of sort of red Tories arguing that the conservative party, the conservative party would only change in so many ways we would end up, uh, we, 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 the Conservative Party would frankly end up looking more like the Liberal Party, we could win. Um, and if that was the case, then why did the Conservatives lose votes in 21 of 29 seats in the 905? Why did they lose four seats in, uh, in, uh, um, in, in the greater Vancouver area? The fact of the matter is, is that, you know, look, everybody in politics has their, has their theories of why something happened and, and, and explanations why it happened. And they're entitled to that. Um, but they can't be entitled to it devoid of the facts. If the argument is O'Toole's plan was working and was connecting the 905, but COVID just ended up screwing up a little bit and things were closer, then that should be backed up by the facts on the ground. They shouldn't have lost all these seats and they shouldn't have lost all these votes. You know, this one argument they say is, well, the Conservatives under O'Toole were closer to winning than they were in 2019, even though we lost votes and seats. That's just simply not the case. They argued that, say, you know, O'Toole publicly said that the Conservatives lost by less than 2,000 votes and around 30 seats. It's actually not true. It was 19. Um, but on top of that, that, that 19 seats include five seats that Conservatives lost in the 2021 election. So they're saying, well, we were close to winning. Yeah, but it was close to winning in a seat that you gave up. So, um, you know, as I said, look, there's lots of things I think we need to do differently. There's lots of things that when I ran a national campaign that we didn't get right. But don't argue that your plan that the plan was a, a sterling success in the face of all the evidence. Well, I would th- even add to that that in 2019, Justin Trudeau was was you know he was a known commodity to people paying close close attention, but he still had the, a little bit of the veneer of you know being this celebrity famous guy with great hair that was running the running the country, and the media were still sort of swooning around him. I think that that in the year in the two years from 2019 to 2021, Trudeau's reputation took a really damning hit and, and and it's gone even more downhill uh, since then he's become basically a laughing stock of the international media he doesn't have the same sort of glossy appeal that he once did more Canadians are starting to see through that so the fact that they couldn't 
do have a better outcome despite the fact that Trudeau had t two more years of again destroying our country uh it doesn't bode well i, I want to ask you uh, about the ppc because dan robertson writes that that bringing home ppc voters isn't the path to victory that that sure that they they meant that the conservatives didn't want to see it here or there but basically that ppc voters don't align with public opinion that they're toxic and they're better off being uh left alone um, I know that when you were running Andrew Scheer's campaign, you, you had to grapple with this you know, Maxime Bernier phenomenon and the PPC. Uh, what, what, what do you make of it now? Uh, do you think that this is right, that, that the PPC voters are sort of a lost cause, or do you think the Conservatives should actively be trying to get them back into the fray? I mean, I, it's a very difficult question. And look, you know, the author's right in that if you add every single PPC vote to the Conservative vote totals, uh, the Conservatives still would not have won the most uh, number of seats uh, in, in this election. Um, so the PPC alone isn't enough for the Conservatives to win. There are a lot of Conservative-minded people inside the PPC, and there's a lot who aren't. Um, the question for me is, look, the PPC is a changing organization, right? Their votes in 2019 were very much focused around um, uh, anti-immigration was their, was their primary issue. In uh, 2021, it was very much around anti-vaccinations, and it was a very different issue set. I'm sure that some people who voted PPC in 2019 didn't stick with the PPC and migrated to other parties. So the question becomes is, how can the PPC, you know, what does a PPC voter look like in 2025? What is that vote? Do I think that some of those people who didn't hear a voice fighting for them strongly enough around mandates, um, for instance, uh, are open to a conservative party who 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 says that yes, people shouldn't have been fired, and you know it's wrong to to mandate all these people out of out of work. Absolutely, and I think there's a good chunk of those voters that can come to the conservative party and actually help grow the conservative party. But do I think the PPC party is a party that's vote can simply be added on top of the conservative party? No, um, but it's also a it's an unusual party in that it's you know these situational parties that often cre created in 2019 or in 2018, I guess, out of, out of the ashes of Bernier's leadership campaign, focus, ended up focusing on immigration um, uh, and then morphed into something else. Usually they don't morph. Usually these parties exist, they come for one election and as their issue in that situation dissipates, so do they. PBC morphed into a, it, it took hold of a second issue, ended up growing because of it. I think that people with, uh, with concerns about mandates and about COVID rules are a important part of a conservative coalition, and many of those votes can be can be added back in. Especially since I think the Canadian public has moved on on a lot of those issues. You know, I like to say so. Just last week, um, the government of Ontario removed the requirement for masks on public transit. You know, I live in downtown Toronto. I take a streetcar every day from uh, from one part of very left wing downtown Toronto right into the heart of the financial district. And, you know, if they were being told by sort of the COVID, uh, uh, you know, the liberals and NDP that, you know, that everybody should be wearing masks, nobody should be giving up their masks, et cetera, et cetera, and concerned about all this stuff. You know, that streetcar that I take every day should be, should not have made a difference once the government said you don't have to wear a streetcar and there'd just be a, a few people taking off their masks. I'd say the streetcar now after one week is 50% of people are unmasked. People are tired of all these rules. And so how that, that, that argument is gonna change in the future, I don't know, but I don't think the PPC vote is a monolithic vote that can be just brought over uh, all at once either. 
Well, what I saw from the provincial election in Ontario was that when the Liberals tried to drum up more fear about COVID, saying that the, the, the PCs weren't going to do a good enough job and that they were going to be stricter with vaccines and all that kind of stuff, I, I saw that there was no appetite for that. The Canadians, even in Liberal Toronto and even in, in left-wing parts of, of Ontario, they didn't, that, that wasn't a winning issue and strategy. And what, what I see, Hamish, especially from True North viewers and people in the comments section, is a real excitement around the candidacy of Pierre Polyev, even people who are longtime supportive people who love Maxime Bernier, um, and they want to see Bernier and Pierre kind of run together, or, or 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 a lot of people who have signed up for the Conservative Party who had never done it before because they're excited, um, not necessarily about you know what what Pierre is saying, but just the the way that he that he says it. I mean, obviously what he's saying, but. You know, the, he, he seems like a fighter. He seems like he's going to stand up for Canadians, marginalized Canadians, uh, the kind of people who would go to a protest party like the PPC because they're frustrated with the status quo. Well, they seem to uh, ha they seem to be listening and, and Pierre seems to be appealing to them. So I think I think that there is something to the idea that, you know, the party that morphs, uh, you, you can capture the imagination with the right candidate um, speaking their language and really appearing to be pushing back against the gatekeepers and the status quo like Pierre talks about. Well, I, I guess just a final question for you, uh, Hamish. You know, there's always this sort of soul searching that happens and this reflection that happens uh, after a party loses. And it is good that we're having these kinds of conversations to help improve, uh, you know, what, what can happen in the next um, election. What, what, what do you think the big takeaway for conservatives should be? And do you think that there's any um, lasting damage in trying to say, okay, we, we, we have the right strategy. We just have to tweak it a little bit and keep, keep, keep with this idea that we need a moderate, uh, socially liberal candidate in order to uh, be Trudeau. I mean, I think, I think there's two important takeaways. Number one is that you need, you can't take the conservative base for granted. You have to make sure that conservatives see themselves as part of your candidacy and your plan and, and what hopefully will be your government. So if, if, if uh, conservatives, uh, conservative activists don't see themselves as part of that, that's gonna be a, that's gonna be a big problem. Uh, that's number one. Number two, I believe that if you're running for, to present change, you have to look like change. You have to sit, put on policies that are different. Running and saying, we agree with the government on, this is true of any party of left, right, whatever situation is, if you're running and saying we agree on 98% of things, we're doing a couple little things different, and our leader is a different sort of person, that's not enough. One of the reasons Trudeau was able, and I'm obviously not a fan of it, one of the reasons Trudeau was able to win in 2015 wasn't just that he was young and dashing and exciting and charismatic, um, but he offered a distinctly different policy agenda and one that frankly looked more like change than the NDP. The NDP in 2015 ran on balanced budgets. They were trying to look more like mature, response, mature responsible choice. The Canadians felt it was time for change and said, what looks more like change? Sure, there's an exciting new leader, Justin Trudeau, but he's also saying he's going to do all these other different things. Now, he ended up not doing a whole bunch of them. And we can, I would argue many of those things he was, wanted to do were bad ideas, but you have to offer change. You have to, if you're saying we're going to be different, you have to be different. Um, otherwise, people are going to say they're going to stick with the devil they know. Um, so that's the big takeaway that I take from all this stuff. You have to offer something different and you can't ignore, you can't just take the conservative base for, for, for granted, or even as it seemed like at times during the, the O2 leadership, run against your own base, demand that the party, point out how your own party was somehow lacking. Um, that's not the way to build a winning coalition. You should get people 
uh, in more people into your party, get them more excited about your party, bring in new folks. That's why O'Toole ended up losing half a million votes. But it's also why, you know, uh, the Polyev's campaign has attracted so many people. Signing up 312,000 people is a massive accomplishment. Those aren't people who are all former conservative members or people, those are people, many of those people are new to politics. Uh, and that's exciting. And if you can build a movement and grow that movement, that's how you win. Absolutely. And throwing throwing your own base and throwing Canadians under the bus and leveling the same kinds of accusations against them that we hear from leftist pundits in the media and liberals and NDP is not not going to work out. I completely echo uh, that sentiment and I uh, appreciate your time, Hamish. Thanks for coming and breaking it all down. Hopefully uh, the Conservative Party takes, takes your advice and uh, takes the party in, in a more authentically conservative direction. Appreciate your time, Hamish. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Kenneth Malcolm, and this is The Kenneth Malcolm Show.